The Camby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Friday, March 19th, 2021, and there are 575 days until the Vancouver municipal election. This is the Cambi Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. We have quite a show for you this evening. It is filled chock-a-block with uh, juicy tidbits from all sorts of stories that we have been following. The Weeb Report is out. It's in our hands. It's in our hands. Uh, and in fact, you will be able to access it on our website uh, if you want to read that 200-page report yourself. Gil Kelly, the chief planner of Vancouver, has departed, sadly, at least in his words. There is a budget freeze at the police board, VSB hearings over cops and schools, and so much more. So we should get started. But first... I have to encourage you to visit patreon.com slash report. Patreon.com slash report. Yes, that's patreon.com slash report, where you can contribute to citizen journalism in this city. It helps fund things like our FOI request, both for this, uh, the Young Report on Michael Weeb and other FOIs that we will be bringing you, hopefully, very soon in coming episodes. Otherwise, I just wanted to wish you all a happy pandemic-versary. We are one year in from the closure on bars from this time last year, as it stretched from an original intended one-day closure to two weeks, to one month, to three months, and now here we are. I really feel like I didn't take advantage of last summer. Man. Because we sit right now on this weird cusp of like, we're all going to get our first dose of our vaccine by Canada Day as long as everything goes smoothly. But we're also on the cusp mm-hmm. of a third wave that is spiraling out of control. So I don't know whether to be excited or scared. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I watch a wonderful blog, or vlog, I guess, called Ask Mortician, who... Uh, this woman who runs a a mortuary in Los Angeles. And like there was a time in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago where one-tenth of the city was infected with COVID. Uh, like there were a million people, the ambulances were going around all night long, the sirens blaring because they had nowhere to stop because there was 0% ICU capacity. What a time to be alive. Let's move on to our first story, The Young Report. What did Raymond Young say to Michael Weeb in that report that said that he needed to resign? So, this afternoon, while we were planning to record anyway, the City of Vancouver's Freedom of Information Department very helpfully dropped this email in my inbox with a 200-page document that included the full report written by lawyer Raymond Young to Mayor Kennedy Stewart about the alleged conflict of interest that Michael Weeb got himself into last May over the temporary expanded patio permit program, effectively the way that City Council decided to give restaurants and bars the ability to open up more space to socially distance. Very good idea. No one really disagreed with it. The question all centered around, were Michael Weeb's votes at two specific meetings in May 2020 
in violation of the city's conflict of interest rules. So specifically these uh, were the May 12th council meeting where we voted in support of referring uh, Sarah Kirby Young's program uh, to the next day's committee. And then at the May 13th standing committee of council on city finance and services meeting, we moved to amend the wording of the motion from direct staff to prepare options and report back as soon as possible to support more flexible patio types to quotes, direct staff to work directly with business owners to identify immediate patio seating options that would move indoor seating capacity outdoors to improve physical distancing. So the program was as we described, Weeb is the co-owner of a bar called Eight and a Half and also owns interest in another restaurant that ended up applying for this program. What I first took away from this is I've been thinking of them as just simple yes no votes on the program itself but this may 13th vote is slightly stronger he actually speaks up and amends the motion to be more accelerated effectively rather than prepare options and report back he wants it to Mm -hmm. get an immediate program going which is reasonable right it was very early in the pandemic things needed to move faster yeah i I think that that's one of the the salient things about this is that while he did not have the same, let's say, exposure as like voting in favor of a contract on something that would affect his business directly and exclusively, this is definitely something that would affect his business directly. And it's a little more concerning that the phrase, quote, direct staff to work directly with business operators was substituted in by Councillor Weeb. This all led to the final vote at the May 27th special council meeting where Weeb votes in favor of motions enabling TPP or the uh, temporary expanded patio program and the fees for that program. Secretary Young is heard thanking Weeb in particular for amending that motion and, and kind of expediting that process. Then, speaking to the the actual conflict of interest that was created, although like arguably the conflict see this is I'll, I'll get into this in a moment on june 1st the program opens for applications on june 2nd eight and a half applies on on june 4th eight and a half receives their permit so would counselor we have been in conflict if he had not applied like i know it's damning that or at least like optically damning that there is a council meeting and a motion that shows him amending this to apply directly to business owners. But like, did the conflict arise if there is a conflict at the point where he voted or at the point where he applied? I have to imagine the act is written in a way that it's at the point of voting because whether or not he takes advantage of the program, it is then available to him. Yeah, but I also feel like that is almost certainly one of those situations where you could claim that this is a interest held by electors in common because he is not applying specifically for like, or amending motion saying eight and a half should get an extra patio space, but rather saying that all businesses should get an extra patio space. I get a cite a specific line from the Young Report. And for those of you following along on your readers at home, it is going to be on the document that we'll be posting. It's 
on the 13th page, quotes, despite apparently being knowledgeable about conflicts of interest, on May 13th, Councillor Wee put forward the amendment, quotes, staff to work directly with business operators to identify immediate patio seating options. Councillor Weeb had to know he was a business operator. His proposed and passed amendment enabled Councillor Weeb to wear two hats while dealing with city staff, that of the council member and that of the business owner. This was a clear conflict of interest situation that he deliberately set in motion. This conflict of interest cannot be viewed as an inadvertent action. I take some issue with this. One, it describes intent, so with, with the phrase deliberately. I don't know that it was deliberate. I think it might have been inadvertent. And so the next sentence, cannot be viewed as an inadvertent action, is in my mind suspect. Further, like, I do love the snark of, Councillor Weeb has to know he has a business owner. Like, well, of, of course. But I think the question of whether he's a business owner versus the business owner, the indefinite versus definite article, is rather salient here. Because if it is the business, like eight and a half gets an extra patio space, then there would be a conflict if it's we're creating a program. I still think that that is an interest held by electors in common. Everyone who conducts commerce is involved in a business of some kind, whether that be, you know, even government in, in some ways is, is a business, especially since we can't print our own currency. I want to draw in two more bits of the report, one from just slightly below what you just read. Young goes on to say, Councillor Weeb's restaurant, Eight and a Half, was among the first 87 businesses to apply for the TEP. He goes on to say there is significant planning and preparation involved in submitting an application. Furthermore, email correspondence involved in the application process was between the administrators of the program and Michael Weeb's personal email address, which is not a great sign in my mind. Like, I get that council is still somewhat viewed as a part-time job in the way that many councillors still run and operate outside interests and businesses versus at other levels of government they often fully recuse themselves and while they may still have interests in other businesses it's often put on colleagues to do blind the, trust or something like that yeah, yeah blind trusts or have colleagues do the grunt work it doesn't look great that he amended a program to move faster and then was emailing with staff from his personal account to apply to that program and then was applying the day after it opened. It, it does it does make it a little suspect, but I, I still don't think that it's actually like as problematic as people view it as. He was among the first 87 businesses to apply. It's not like the, he wasn't the first. Uh, admittedly, he was among the first 14 restaurants uh, granted a patio, but I just don't, it, like, and, and I've been beating this drum for some time, but I just don't really buy it. To bring in Young's yeah. counterpoint and how he frames it as this isn't just a common interest, here's the argument from the Young report, which I'll put out there. While Councillor Weeb is correct in stating that the TEPP is a citywide program, it is limited to restaurants and liquor primary establishments with existing patios or the ability to create patios. There were over 3,000 business licenses issued to restaurants and bars in 2019. As of the July 24th, city had issued 290 temporary permits for patios. As of that date, the TEPP had benefited less than 10% of restaurants and bars in the city. 
While the number of applications has increased since that date is still limited to the food service industry, within the food service industry is further limited to those establishments that can, within the city and province's guidelines, expand existing patios or create new patios. Therefore, the pecuniary interest cannot be considered a pecuniary interest in common with the electors of the city in general. So I think this is where it's the shoulder argument, because there's a clear case where if he was the only restaurant that could benefit from this program, I think we'd both agree mm -hmm. it's not in common with the city in general, and he's clearly just benefiting himself. But there's the other extreme where, you know, his business is no different than any of the 3,000 other businesses with similar licenses that could benefit from this program. Or like when councillors mm -hmm. vote on property tax changes, even yeah. if they own property. There is a middle ground somewhere in there where it's fuzzy and it's how, you know, where on the sliding scale does the common interest with electors in general disappear? And I don't know. And I don't know either, and neither, as it turns out, does Raymond Young, because the motion at the most recent hearing, not motion, but the, the finding at the most recent hearing was that this report would be excluded except for the, the evidence that was gathered, but the conclusions would not be seen as binding. I, I tend to think that because anyone could be an investor in a business, and in fact we from a matter of public policy, want people to invest in businesses in Vancouver. It is still like very reasonable to think that this is a interest held by electors in common. Now we move on to some of the things that I actually find more problematic. So this question arises and has been debated more publicly, but now with the report, we can see the inside of what's happened. The report goes on and points out at a couple points that it, requires the investigator, Raymond Young, to give Weeb the chance to present his defense. Weeb claims he never had that opportunity. He wrote in the Georgia Strait on September 21st that the complaint concluded without his knowledge and without allowing him to provide a fulsome information. And he then requested the investigator provide him an opportunity to give input and advice. So Young includes in his appendices, the email that he first sent to Michael Weeb, as well as the emails from Mayor Kennedy Stewart, who notified Weeb about the complaint on July 27th. The reply from Michael Weeb that came on the same day, on July 23rd, as he was asked by Raymond Young to meet him, and then Young's reply on August 16th, to which Weeb never replied. It is problematic, and can I just, on, on a brief aside, say I hate when people use the word fulsome to mean thorough, because like traditionally the word has meant insincere, like over the top to the point of being insincere, and, and now people just like use it to mean thorough or thoroughgoing, and, and that really bothers me. I'm really glad that he didn't provide fulsome information, which is to say he didn't lie, but he also didn't provide any information, and then, of course, did appear to have at the very best, misrepresented the truth of the matter to the, the investigator. So I want to quote a piece of the investigator's email to Councillor Weeb. He says at one point, I would be happy to discuss the issues with you and be curious to know why, why is in all caps, you did not disclose your specific pecuniary interests in your seconding and voting on the patio restaurant issue. Please feel free to bring your lawyer along. Just, just that snark in these, right? I love it. So Weeb replies, I would be happy to meet 
in person to explain my votes, yet I'm a little concerned with the tone of your email. For context, I had legal advice in the council chambers on the votes in question and did on multiple occasions declare a conflict of interest on patio and related votes because of my restaurant and related businesses. So Raymond Young asked for evidence of that. He asked for the receipts. And this is when we provides no response and Young actually goes to the clerk to see if we did declare his interest at any of these points. And obviously, as we know, we did not declare as conflicts of interest in the May votes or potential alleged conflicts of interest, though he did on June 11th. Yeah, and I think that's because he probably got a little spooked. This was after his first warning from uh, Johnston. Let's dig into that because that was the extra piece we got. The other thing we asked the city for as part of an FOI was any legal advice that was given to Councillor Weeb, and the city replied, legal advice is privileged and confidential. We're not going to give you that, but we gave you this email. <laughs> so on, <laughs> this email is delicious. So on June 10th, Ian Dixon from the city's law department writes to then city manager Sadhu Johnston, and I'll just read this in full because it's worthwhile. He writes, there was some commentary over the weekend regarding Councillor Weeb's potential conflict of interest with respect to the various patio and restaurant licensing issues that are being considered by Council. The law department has not been consulted with respect to whether he is in a conflict or not, but we do have some concerns that he may be. If we were consulted, our normal practice would be to suggest that he obtains outside legal advice. Councillor Weeb may have received legal advice that he is not in a conflict, but at present we don't know whether he has turned his mind to these issues. It might be prudent to reach out to him to confirm whether he has considered the issue. Johnston then forwards that to Weeb, and Weeb on June 11th, after receiving this email, declares a conflict before the next vote on patio fees. Yeah, so that's a pickle. I should say Johnston also forwarded that email again on September 21st, following the publication of Weeb's statement in which he said, in advance of the votes, I asked for advice from city management, and my understanding was that the patio policy would be broad and citywide, benefiting all of Vancouver's restaurant sector, as well as breweries with tasting rooms and even common public spaces, and that the policy doesn't specifically benefit me over other operators. I was also informed it is up to me to determine whether I can participate with an open mind in the votes. And, like, I don't know what he's talking about, because there doesn't appear to be any legal advice that would suggest that. Now, one thing that I, I think might have happened is he talked informally to one of City Legal staff and City Legal was like, eh, mm. but like what I think a lot of non-lawyers don't realize is that like legal advice isn't any advice that you get from a lawyer, a person who happens to be a lawyer, that's not legal advice. Legal advice is actually like, the equivalent in, in like in engineering terms would be like stuff provided under seal and those things are like official and carry the lawyer's name and and training with them the random stuff that a lawyer might say off the cuff is not legal advice that is just sort of fluff certainly like you can assume that there is a level of education and and expertise that a lawyer's going to be using when they're going to be providing said fluff, but it is still fluff and not legal advice. I think it's also worth parsing the language he used in that Georgia Strait statement very closely. He doesn't say he ever asked for or received legal advice. He just got advice from city management. And he also replies that it's his understanding 
about what that advice said rather than saying what the actual advice was, which again suggests a more informal kind of conversation like you're talking about, but it may be that he didn't even talk to the law department. Yeah, that is my my s suspicion. And like the tragedy of this is that it all could have been avoided by him standing up in council and saying, you know, I am a business owner. I have this thing that may be perceived as a conflict of interest. I do not believe it is a conflict of interest, but rather am making a good faith effort to both separate my business interests from my vote and also to vote on this as a issue held with electors in common, which I mean, it could be. My opinion is, it is, is that it is. Mr. Young's opinion is that it is not. His was actual legal advice. Mine is, as I mentioned earlier, fluff. And we will have to wait to see for many more months what the Supreme Court of British Columbia's opinion on the matter will be. Yes, and we will wait with bated breath as that eventually rolls down the pipe. Just a quick note to go to canbyreport.ca to read the full document and come to whatever conclusions you will in the meantime. Yes. Also coming to a conclusion, Gil Kelly's term as the head of planning of the city of Vancouver. This was a rather surprise announcement on Monday. There were, Francis Biola tweeted out, I think at like noon, that something was brewing at City Hall and got the rumor mill a flutter for about an hour and a half until it finally came out that, yeah, Gil Kelly, who's been with the city for five years, is departing. And we still don't know whether he was fired or resigned. I suspect that he was quit fired because he said that he was sad to be leaving. <laughs> I think he also said he's off to pursue other endeavors. Which means I have been asked to pursue other endeavors. I need to find a new job. I don't have one yet. So. He is the latest in a, a string of city planners dating back uh, to Larry Beasley. The one that everyone seems to remember is Brent Tadarian, who served as the city planner from 2006 to 2012. Following Tadarian, there was Brian Jackson, and then t assuming the role in 2016 was Gil Kelly. He was previously director of citywide planning for San Francisco, and before that led planning in Portland for 10 years and Berkeley, California for 14 years. Yeah, I remember seeing a number of articles when Kelly first arrived in Vancouver and throughout his tenure, he would talk about the need to get more housing, the need to really focus on the missing middle in Vancouver. He talked a good game and really talked a game that I think urbanists wanted to hear. You know, over his time, we saw him finalize the Canby Corridor plan, the Northeast Falls Creek plan. He helped launch the Broadway plan, the citywide plan, the Vancouver plan has started under his watch as well as an employment lands and economy review. I mean, I can't say that the Canby Corridor plan is great. In fact, I think it is, what, what is the word? Garbage? <laughs> because like, there is a massive 20 block food desert from like 23rd to 41st or 40, like to Oak Ridge basically on, on Canby. And it is like insane that that exists. It's all, like going to be very dense housing in there. Uh, it's all like six story concrete frame buildings or concrete poor buildings. And it still is this massive like food desert where there's no retail, no retail on the, the first floor, no shops on the first floor, no uh, restaurants on the first floor, no groceries, etc. And that is bad. Like I have friends in that neighborhood who would love to be able to walk to, you know, their neighborhood cannabis shop or 
whatever. And instead we have row after row of these like six to 10 story buildings that are not like really a live work play thing. It is effectively creating stacked suburbs. But that's just my critique of the Canby Corridor plan. Some of his other achievements are a little more laudable. The Broadway plan launch, starting the Citywide Vancouver plan. Speaking of which, on the Citywide Vancouver plan, the Citywide Planning Kit is available to people, and then you can do your own city planning exercise on what is important to the city, and I feel like this audience is the kind of people who would be interested in filling that out. I did mine this last Saturday with a couple of friends, and had a really interesting discussion about what Vancouver's future might be, including uh, our suggestion, please abolish RS2 zoning, but I feel like that might not make it through. So Kelly's latter half of his tenure seems to have been marred by a lot of rumors of frustration, and it's really undetermined right now whether how much of that was on the council that can be seen as pretty dysfunctional when it comes to anything involving housing versus internal city planning department issues. We know that in January, it was reported that Kelly had been in Oregon since late November and was allegedly returning to Vancouver, but it's unclear if he ever actually did. We're working on some more details behind the scene on these questions. And we're hoping to have another story out exclusively next week for you, dear listeners. In the interim, Teresa O'Donnell, who is the Deputy Director of Planning, has been appointed as the Interim Director of Planning. Rumor has it that she is one of the most pro-housing voices in the department. But I wanted to take this moment to like editorialize a little bit, because I think this might herald the fourth revolution. So. If anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to a back episode, The Sullivan Sessions, where, you know, and I know that many of you have, have differing political views than Sam Sullivan, and believe me, I also have some differing political views from Sam Sullivan, but Sam is a, a very critical and deep thinker about city politics and city planning, and I think that his perspective is very valuable. One thing that he has talked about is the three revolutions in citywide planning that have occurred roughly every 50 years, first for governance and then sustainability. And, and now uh, we are coming up to the election where the fourth revolution should be happening. And that fourth revolution is still very much up in the air. It's an important inflection point. So if we are going to seize this opportunity, it is important that we choose a city planner who is going to address the problems of Vancouver as Vancouver is going to confront them in this century, in this, in this next 50 years. The old order has failed to provide the balance the city needs where people can live, work, and play in the same spaces. And I think that the combination of factors that are aligning the departure of the city planner, the departure of the city manager, the development of the citywide plan, a council that has gridlocked to a point where instability, I think, will breed a level of, of discontent with council, or rather excessive stability. But there's no stability of voting blocks on council, that's what I, I mean. So that situation is not 
sustainable. And I think that this is the, the dying gas of the Roman Republic before the Gracchi brothers and Caesar come and wreck shop. Hopefully uh, it doesn't involve quite as much, you know, disaster as, as that did, but change still can and indeed must come. And so I think this is an exciting opportunity, much as it might be sad for Mr. Kelly to depart the role, I think this presents a massive opportunity for the city of Vancouver to reimagine its future. Well, in discussing Gil Kelly, one of the things that came up around his departure is the day after he announced his departure, the Beattie Group announced that it was taking the city to the BC Court of Appeal over a previous rejection by the Development Permit Board, who we talked about on our last show, a decision of back in 2017 to kill the 105 Keithburgh project. This longtime listeners will remember as quite the controversial development in Chinatown. Notably, Gil Kelly was the deciding vote at the Development Permit Board back in 2017 when that board rejected a project that otherwise seemed to meet city's zoning specifications. Yeah, so the ensuing litigation led lawyers for Beattie and the city of Vancouver to appear before a trio of BC Court of Appeal judges on Tuesday after Beattie appealed the BC Supreme Court's earlier procedural ruling in that case. In the September judgment, the BC Supreme Court judge dismissed Beattie's application to have the matter referred to trial instead of being handled through the usual judicial review process. Now, that is a blow against Beatty because the normal judicial review process has some pretty high standards for overruling an administrative board. Those those boards have a lot of leeway. As my as my friend refers to them, they are baby bitch tribunals because you can just say wah and as long as there is a, a reason for crying, then the wah stands. Now, Beatty argues that public opposition to the board uh, the board meeting potentially swayed votes. There were noisy protests demanding social housing rather than market housing. Prey said that chanting BD is greedy was no doubt intended to sway the board, which should not have been able to have been considered by the board at the meeting. The city sent outside counsel to argue at the BC Court of Appeals for that hearing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the Court of Appeal comes down on. Like you said, there's a lot of deference in our system to administrative tribunals, controversially so. Mm -hmm. This argument is an interesting I, one. Yeah, and I think that, like, what is it able to be considered at an administrative tribunal is, like, it, it's very up in the air because, like, there's a, 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 a concept called judicial notice, which is not that judicial notice must be posted, but rather that judicial notice must be taken of certain things and judicial notice must not be taken of other things. Was an improper judicial notice taken of the protesters who were chanting BD is greedy? I mean, possibly, but there also is a high standard for overruling them. Like the, the standard isn't in most cases correctness, like whether or not the board made the correct decision, but whether or not the decision was reasonable. A correct decision requires a very high uh, bar to be cleared. I am unsure whether or not this, this meets it. I, I tend to think that even with the new trio or the the trilogy of administrative law decisions which are Vavilov, Bell, and Dunsmuir that 
govern administrative law appeals in Canada. It, it's still very, very difficult to overrule an administrative tribunal, provided that the reasons were within the realm of possibility for their decision making. Speaking of controversial administrative, I, I think it counts as an administrative tribunal decision. The Vancouver Police Board rejects City Council's budget decision to freeze their budget and has asked the Director of Policing of the province to make the city give them more money. Yes, so democracy is uh, a farce. It is not real. And an unelected board can appeal an elected decision of council uh, to run the city. They can, of course, force the province to, or rather they can ask the province to force the city, a elected body in its own right, to overrule the city's own democratic decisions and get the money that they had requested. This comes, of course, from the policing power under Section 92 of the Constitution, which is in the exclusive province of the provinces. That's the Constitution that does not recognize that municipalities exist. Yes, that's the one, the one that does not think that cities are real. And while that may have been true in 1867, <laughs> you know, York accepted. Cities are very much a thing now, especially considering that Canada, despite being the world's second largest nation, is, well, very urbanized. We all, we all live in the cities. Now, the budget this year was $5.7 million less than requested, and that in particular has left the police board unable to hire 61 new recruits this year. Speaking to, like, the idea of police renewal, I think this is actually kind of unfortunate, as new blood is the only way to renew a police force, but that also has to come with internal structural change to retrain, or rather to change the method of training for officers, because the shaping of police officers occurs on that like first year or two on the job when they are, are partnered with a senior police officer and that becomes their, their training and becomes the template for the entire career. If they are during that period forced to, you know, use excessive force or, or forced to uh, confront people in a way that is aggressive, they are going to use that template of confrontation for their entire career. Conversely, if they are going to be taught to de-escalate, to use non-lethal methods of force, to treat their job partially as a social worker and partially as a peace officer, there is an opportunity for real change. However, that can only occur if a real effort is made in the realm of training of police officers. As such, I don't have too much of a problem with the police budget being frozen by city council. However, the police board, and frankly all institutions, are creatures of inertia and wish to continue in their ways. Yeah, it's notable that the vote at the police board to appeal to the province was unanimous. Now, Mayor Kennedy Stewart sits on and chairs that board, but he does not have a vote on the board, so he, we can't say, voted in favor or necessarily supported this. We don't know. He tends to be pretty mum because he sits in conflicting roles, being on the city side who voted to freeze the budget and then sitting on the police board side now who wants to appeal that. I will just go back to the claim by the police that they won't be able to hire 61 new recruits. And can I just say that's bullshit? Like, they have 
a yeah, lot of money. You, you are right? allowed to say they, that. They have a lot of money still, right? And they can direct it in many different ways. We're going to talk in a second about one program where they're probably spending over a million dollars on easily that they could just cut and they are being asked to cut. And if they did that, they could hire or redirect a lot of police officers. So why don't we move on to that program? It's the Cops and Schools program at the VSB. So there was a VSB hearing. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend, I, but the hearing was heated and had a lot of people speaking. Uh, nearly all the pro-police speakers were connected to the Vancouver Police Department in some way, being a partner or spouse of a police officer, an officer themselves, or former police officers, etc., etc. Fewer um, people who went from being VSB students to like the cadets program of the Vancouver police as well. Yeah, so people who have been affected by the, the program themselves. So And notably, a lot of them were people of color who spoke positively of seeing, you know, brown, black police officers in their schools as positive role models. So they, that message was there. Yeah, and, and that should not be ignored. Now, the, the eventual speaker list came down 12 against and 18 in favor of removing the cops and schools. Most of the people who were surveyed during the, the Argyle PR ran survey of, of people generally were in favor of retaining the program. However, most black and indigenous people were not somewhat shockingly. The police argued that, or and many people who spoke in favor of the program argued that the police need to be humanized in the eyes of students and allow, allow me to claim that, again, this is bullshit. Police don't need to be humanized. They need to act like humans. Like if you want to be treated as a member of the human race, you better damn well act like it. You don't need to create an illusion that you are, you know, all chummy with students. You just need to behave well. No decisions were made at last week's school board meeting. This was basically just the school board's chance to hear from the public on what they thought about the report generated by Argyle PR, as well as what they thought about the program in general. It will be coming back to the school board for further discussion on April 7th at the governance meeting, and then it goes before the full school board on April 26th for a likely final recommendation. Finally, in the spirit of St. Patrick's Day that was earlier this week, I want to close today's episode with a Vancouverada that comes to us by way of UBC journalist Zach Vassera from 2018, called Definitely Irish. Vassera writes about a potential third wave of Irish immigration that's happening right now in Canada and in Vancouver in specifically, well, at least it was happening before the pandemic. He writes about how Irish students would generally take a summer abroad as a tradition, many of whom use the J-1 cultural and exchange visa of the United States of America as a holiday, as a working holiday in the States. But for both the reason we won't name from 2016 to 2020, many have started not going to the United States as well. During that time, the administration raised fees on that specific visa and required those applying for it to have prearranged employment, making it not such a useful work abroad holiday visa. Here in Canada, though, we've maintained a fairly simple working holiday visa. You simply need to show that you have $2,500 in your pocket and that you're between the ages of 18 and 35. So many Irish students have looked to this and come to Canada 
as a pretty good place to visit. And Vesera says through a combination of hearsay, social media, and sheer critical mass, Vancouver has become a foremost destination for many of these students. Through word of mouth, many have ended up in construction, design, and service industry, and in true Vancouver fashion, many have ended up in overcapacity housing and are being taken advantage of by landlords, including those who are trying to preclude Irish applicants from even applying for housing, which is straight up illegal. But when you have a less than 1% vacancy rate, I guess anything goes. This growing wave of immigration from Ireland to Vancouver has become known as the J1ers in honor of the visa that they are not getting anymore in the United States. And as someone whose ancestry dates back to Northern Ireland and Ireland more broadly, I just want to say welcome to Vancouver, J1ers. I hope you like it here. For the Camby Report, I'm Ian Bushfield. We've had some technical difficulties, so I'll be signing off on Matthew's behalf. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Find the whole Young Report at cambyreport.ca. Support the show at patreon.com slash cambyreport. We'll see you soon. Good night.